Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit FightRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Judith Johnson, and we will be talking about her work, as well as her new book, Making Peace with Death and Dying, A Practical Guide to Liberating Ourselves from the Death Taboo. Judith Johnson is an educator and mentor whose mission is to help others to raise the level of consciousness from which they are living uh, their lives. For over 40 years, she's been studying and teaching the dynamics of how our beliefs inform our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors as individuals and in our relationships, social order, culture, and institutions. Judith's work draws upon her own life lessons, wisdom teachings from around the world, doctoral degrees in social psychology and spiritual science, and her experience mentoring others since 1983. Ordained as an interfaith minister in 1985, she served as a chaplain at her local hospital and counsels the greeting. Judith is the author of The Wedding Ceremony Planner, An Essential Guide to the Most Important Part of Your Wedding Day, and Writing Meaningful Wedding Vows, and lives in New York, Hudson Valley. For more information, you can visit Judith's website, which is judithjohnson.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Judith. So good day, Judith. Hello. Well, I am happy to chat with you today. <laughs> I am uh, too. Yeah, you know, and the uh, reason I did that little pause is because, you know, um, today's topic of, of death and dying is one that so many people kind of either shy away from, don't have, or hesitate like I did. So I hope hopefully by the end of today's show, well, our listeners will be a little bit more informed and a little less um, anxious about death and dying. So, um, there are a lot of books out there about death and dying, um, going all the way back to Elizabeth Subler-Ross. So, what makes your book different about the subject? Okay, great question. My book primarily focuses on the fact that um, uh, let me put it in the context of you, you said it about how people shy away from the topic. The reason we do that is because we have been programmed to do so through a cultural death taboo that teaches us to relate to death with fear and avoidance, okay, which is not a really healthy way to deal with that. So what my book does is it explains that to people about how this death taboo came about, how it works, the, um, the impact it has on us in our society, both in our individual and collective lives, and then it goes into detail about how you can break free. 
And I think this is really, really important because one of the bottom line conclusions I drew is that our culture fails to embrace the full depth and breadth of the human experience. Uh, it leaves us really ill-equipped for living and dying with profound authenticity and competence. And I don't know about you, but when I think about my life, that's what I'd like to do. I would like to be authentic, and I'd like to be good at doing life. And when we live in fear of death, we don't live very well either. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And it's, um, you know, the, the idea of it being a topic not to talk about or, or even to be anxious about um, is, is one that we really, I mean, it's, going to happen to everyone, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's going to happen to us at some particular point in time. So, uh, you know, I, I like, you know, your book when it talks about basically embracing as the, the death as simply a part, part and parcel of the whole human experience. Right. I mean, it's not, not, not just that we all are going to die. Every single one of us got born, we are living, and someday our body's going to die, okay? Right. And that's unavoidable. We're all on this same journey. But what my book is talking about is how do we relate to those parts of the journey? Because we live in a society that basically tells us to put our hands over our eyes and pretend that death isn't coming. And that mm -hmm. doesn't really serve us. Um, I'd like to elaborate on that a little bit because um, every year in this country, 2.8 million people die. And these people, and primarily, and I'm, and I'm sad to say this, but it's very common for the people who are dying, the people who love them and care for them, to suffer through the experience emotionally isolated from each other and also frightened, ignorant of what options they have, and unprepared spiritually and practically. And again, it's not our fault that we function that way because we have been culturally programmed to behave that way. But what my book talks about is how do you get out from under that? Because what we have to do, having been programmed, we need to um, overcome this way of looking at death as something to fear and avoid. And we have to learn how to override the programming and to dismantle it if we really want to be able to live in a health, live and die in a healthier way. Yeah. You know, it, it was interesting. I had a show, I think it was last month, where it came up about um, dying and death. And the, there was a comment about, we were talking about how um, medical, in, in the medical profession, particularly the Western culture, that many times dying, you know, is um, sometimes, from the, the medical perspective, a failure, you know. Where I mean, so, that, so quite often it, it's, um, I mean, it, it can be difficult sometimes talking to a health or a medical professional, um, you know, with that perspective, have you, you know, come across, you know, any um, uh, information on how maybe the medical profession um, perpetuates that death taboo? 
Well, absolutely. If you look at the core of what the medical profession focuses on, they focus on life, okay? They focus on, you know, we have all of these high technologies and new treatments and all of these bells and whistles for how can we keep people living. And we've extended the lifespan beautifully because of that. But at the same time, when a doctor is in medical school, they are taught, you know, the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm and preserve life. They are not taught how to deal with the normalcy of the fact that we are also going to die. And so that it wasn't until about 50 years ago when our society very, very began to um, entertain the concept of hospice care, which essentially is about having people who are professionally qualified and competent in handling what actually happens in the in the dying process. And so there's this point of the handoff, if you will, that our society is, is learning how to do now. The more um, we, we embrace the reality of hospice and don't think of, oh, I don't want hospice because that's about dying, we need to learn that to switch that thought into, you know, when it comes time, I really would like some people who know what they're doing to be helping me rather than, you know, there's this moment where doctors might be trying to do more and more procedures that really may not be going to do anything to improve the quality of your life. And we need to accept the reality that there is a time when, when we are moving towards death and learning to surrender to that as a normal thing, not something to fight. Um, I want to share one example um, that I found atrocious. Uh, in my research for this book, I was reading a thanatology textbook. Um, there are a lot of courses that are now being taught about death and end of life in colleges and all. And in this particular textbook, they literally gave an example of a contemporary hospital that bans the use of the word death around patients. Now, <laughs> when you ban the use of the word death, you're, you're making it so wrong, okay? So if you and I are working on the same, you know, medical floor and I need to communicate to you that a patient has died, in that hospital there's a code and you say, guess who won't be shopping at Walmart anymore? Now, I think no. that is, isn't that awful? That is, that is bad. That is very bad. Yeah, yeah. But that is how deep the taboo runs, and it's important for us to realize that, and that we often have to coach the doctor to say, don't you think it's time that we look at hospice care? Or is there anything, do, we, do you think we might slow, maybe stop doing procedures? There's a, um, a, a new segment in medicine called slow medicine, that has been proposed, that when you get into this time where you're trying to figure out is there anything that can actually improve the quality of life for this patient or are we just fighting against death and the inevitable, slow medicine says really think about that and consider saying no to some procedures if, they, if the procedure, for example, might do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we really do need to shift um, so much of our perspective when it comes to healthcare and end of life kinds of um, situations 
um, and, and how we react to them. Now, uh, one of the things, you know, you, you talked about, you know, hospice and the, you know, you talked about institutionalization, excuse me, of, um, of medical care and of the sick and elderly. And those, those were a couple of, uh, what you call the deep five taproots of yes. the American culture of death. So can you talk, and, and I, I was real curious, but I mean, curious about, you know, the institutional aspect, um, you know, the institutionalization, how that, I mean, obviously that Utah hospital is one example when you talk about, you know, um, when it comes to medical care being in, in avoidance, I guess, you know, um, but in general, you know, the, the institutionalization, excuse me, of medical yes. care in, in the sick and elderly. So can you talk about how that feeds in? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and, and let me preface it by saying, because something is commonly done doesn't mean that it's our best solution, okay? Um, if you go back into the early, early eight, if you go back into the 1800s, all right, um, one of the key taproots that I talk about is the birth of the funeral industry. Um, and I want to, and what you're talking about, about medical care, there are three examples I want to talk about that are the ways that we have institutionalized sanitizing death away from our everyday life, okay? The first was the Civil War when um, people wanted to bring the bodies of the dead soldiers home, and that brought popularity of embalming. Embalming brought forward the funeral industry. And all of a sudden, furniture makers were making coffins, and all of these things were being done outside of the home. I was talking to somebody last week who was mentioning that she lives in a house built in the early 1800s that had two parlors, front parlors, and that she was surprised to learn that one of the parlors was specifically for when somebody was, had died, and it was the viewing parlor, like in a funeral home, but it was actually in the home home of the person. That was normal. That was how we handled death in the past. Then the funeral industry took it out of the house. Similarly, okay, the institutionalization of medical care. People used to be cared. We used to live in intergenerational homes. And if somebody was sick or dying, they were cared for at home. And then in time, we reached this point where we were having all of this um, scientific breakthroughs about how to treat different diseases and things, and we created, you know, hospital. You know, we expanded hospitals and all of these care facilities for treating sickness. Okay, and so people went to hospitals when they were sick instead of being at home. Now, if you don't have the sick person in the home and you go to a hospital, and when you think of a sterilized environment of a hospital room where you don't probably have pictures of your loved ones and things like that, except more recently we do, um, it's a very different feeling, okay, than going into grandma's room down the hall and bringing her a cup of tea or something. So it became more foreign to us to deal with sickness. When somebody gets sick, they get taken away, okay? 
So when they're dying, the body gets taken away. When they're sick, they get taken away. And now, and then there was also the uh, burgeoning of um, the elderly going into nursing homes. That whole industry came up as well. So there's this sense of um, you kind of get removed. It's like, oh, it's not good to be old, so we'll put we put them away. Now, granted, there's a sense of efficiency in the kind of care that can be provided, but there's a huge price we pay in terms of our becoming unfamiliar with these parts of life and um, being uncomfortable with them. Yeah, very much so. And I, uh, within the last couple of years, had the, you know, the occasion to be involved in someone being, you know, placed in assisted living and, and dying there and then, you know, kind of dealing with the issue of her wanting to be at home, you know, yeah. around her things. And, and, you know, and then to the, uh, the despair of, well, this is, I guess this is where I'm going to die. Um, which actually did happen, you know, but I mean, it's, it, it, and it was very sad, um, you know, to go through that process. But I mean, and again, you know, um, like you say, you know, if it were to, if she were to be at home, you know, the ability to, pr- to provide the level of care that she required just wasn't there, you know, I mean, right. no one right. in the house had that, or even the ability, the support structure to have someone you know, be there for that wasn't there. You know, the, the, you know just right. the outside the medical house. So, um, you know, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, the passing was very removed, you know, and, but, and, and I think there's, there's a lot that's missed, you know, during yeah. that, during the different time. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that there's some kind of perfect solution here. But a lot of it resides in our attitude and our understanding that there, there are costs and benefits of, for example, institutionalized medicine and care of the elderly and all of those kinds of things. Because in much of the sanitizing of the experience of death, we lose our, we lose our comfort with death. Not that we were necessarily hugely comfortable with it before, but I mean, you know, it, it's things like you'll go into the room of a, of a loved one who's in a hospital who's you know is dying, and instead of acknowledging how you feel, I mean, people get caught up in, I don't want to um, upset you by letting you know what I'm thinking. This is what I'm talking right. about, about the emotional isolation. And so I'll come into your room and I'll say something like, oh, your color looks good today, rather than, how are you doing, Mom? How are you feeling? You know, we we need to learn how to bridge the gap of the isolation that we've created by these institutions. We need to learn how to humanize our interactions and be ourselves and be authentic, you know, um, it's it's tricky territory, but when when we're when you live with an attitude that this is something to be avoided, then mm-hmm. nobody wants to talk about it. Um, I want to mention something that I think is a, is a wonderful um, addition. A lot of things that are good, and I want to say that that are currently happening. And as obviously, I'm a, I'm a big fan of hospice. 
But another thing that I find is really wonderful and providing a great service is the Death Cafe. Have you ever been to one? No, I have not. <laughs> okay, I know it's a very strange sounding thing, and and I can imagine that it probably strikes people that way. But the Death Cafe is a concept that initiated in England in 2011. There are currently um, over what is it? Over 13 and a half thousand Death Cafes in 81 countries right now. Okay, the Death Cafe is this. Some of the, the concept is this. Let's get a bunch of total strangers to get together, have a cup of coffee or tea and a piece of cake, and talk about death. Okay? The funny thing is that people do this quite comfortably with total strangers, but things that they can't say to their loved ones because we're so afraid of upsetting each other by talking about this taboo topic. But the stakes mm. are different for us when we're talking to a total stranger. So it's a wonderful way to start opening up the conversation. And wow. people can go wow. to deathcafes.com and look up and see if there's a location near them. And um, I, I'll be surprised if anybody goes and doesn't find it very, very rewarding. Wow. I have never heard of that. <laughs> Okay. Now, I, now, if I were to put on my to-do list or my bucket list, you know, to visit a death cafe, I'm sure I would get the look. I know it sounds so crazy, but it really is a very interesting idea. And I have been, I've been to probably ten of them. And each time it has been a remarkable experience to observe and to participate in these conversations of people who are, you know, I remember the first one I went to, there was a woman, you, you end up in a group of about six people. The, the whole group gets divided into tables that have smaller conversations. And I remember I, there was a woman who was, uh, who had cancer. She was stage four breast cancer. And she spoke candidly about what that was like for her. You know, I haven't had anyone that I could talk to about that. There was another woman at the table who was, who belonged to a um, kind of a, an unusual um, religious community that who had very uh, actually their group had a very healthy attitude towards death, and to hear from her was was valuable. And each person um, had their own story. You know, I came with my story about my mother's death and how how much that informed who I am today. And uh, just hearing other people speak of their experiences, it's a wonderful opportunity because we're, you know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in fear. Yeah. I don't think about anything, about anything. And this is a big one to break down. And if we can help each other break through the fear of death, I think that we've given each other a great opportunity to live more fully. Yeah, I agree. And I'm sure your mother, Grace, or Kate, is listening in as we're talking now. And happy that you're doing what you're doing. So, uh, I um, know. <laughs> it's, it's great to, to be able to, uh, to fulfill one of her wishes. So, yeah, um, yeah. Now, one of the messages that comes through love here in your book is the importance of loving kindness um, with those at end of life. 
And in one at one point too in the book, I remember reading you know, uh, a, a statement that it is their death <laughs> or their dying, but not yours. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of that that loving kindness and also the personal um, experience? You know, the I guess the the person the person dying's story, their ability sure. to sure. have their story. Yeah, those are two very separate points. And the, the first is, in terms of love, and, and anybody who visits my website knows that on every page I have a statement that says, love is our first and most sacred priority. And I believe that deeply, that love is really the, the, the greatest healing force that we have. And what does it mean to love? It means to really remove our boundaries from each other our, you know, our separation and to accept one another and to, and to bring positive uh, care and consideration to ourselves and to each other. And I think that's critically important. And what happens, again, when, you're, when you live in fear of death and when you're, shall I say, infected by the death taboo, which all of us are, um, mm-hmm. it, it's very difficult because we don't know how to be at ease. If you're living in fear and avoidance, you're not comfortable. Okay? So the more that you can kind of breathe into, ah, this is normal, and this is somebody I love. And the person, it's like important to remember, like for me, this is my mommy. This is cake. This is somebody I love. And to not be overcome by, oh, my God, she's dying. That can move us into the fear piece, but to come into the, to stay in the part of you that loves that person and to be as authentic as possible rather than trying to sanitize the experience between you and not upset each other, it can be very upsetting if we don't talk about it and share our true feelings, okay? That's really important. And in the second point about um, it's their experience. One of the things I see, because I, as I, as you know, I mentor people, um, and I, I both do grief counseling specifically, but I also mentor um, people who are dying and loved ones in dealing with end of life issues, all kinds of issues about end of life. And one of the things that I consistently see is usually there's one family member that becomes the primary family caregiver. And that person gets run ragged, okay, with trying to meet every challenge that comes along. Um, you know, usually it's a daughter and they're trying to be a good daughter and to do the right thing and to take good care of their mother, for example. Now, I know for myself there were times where my mother and I clashed about what we thought should happen. And one of the things that I learned was this is her death, not mine. I am not there to tell her how to go through her death. I am here to love her as her daughter and to do my best to keep her safe. But it's not my death, it's hers. And I think people very often in trying to do a good job as a caregiver uh, try to run the show rather than be in the, the you know, the lead of the supporting cast. Yeah. Yeah, and 
Um, you know, with, with that, you know, as the individual ages, and in, in your book you have a good chart uh, that kind of talks about some of the uh, physical and psychological changes that happen as you age. You know, as they age, you know, there is the um, the idea that the dying person, you know, may not be uh, capable, you know, or, or um, mm-hmm. you know, may not be, you know, capable of, of of kind of making, you know, certain decisions when it comes to their how they want to end their life, but also some, sometimes, and I've been in the assisted living uh, facilities and seen quite a number of honoring old folks, you know, so that, you know, when it comes to loving, you know, your dying um, loved one, um, that, you know, sometimes that having that loving kindness can be a challenge, but that's really what's most important during that time, correct? Absolutely. But let me let me add something else because you bring up a super important point, and there's a caveat I want to put in there. If we think about the loving as I'm supposed to be loving them, but um, I remember when I was ordained, I was amazed that the charge of the ministry was to minister first to myself and then to my family and loved ones and then to the world at large. So you don't empty your tank. You don't give of your of of what you need for yourself. You have to. One of the most important things is learning your own boundaries in that process. And sometimes the most loving thing you can do is say, I I I have to do something for myself today. I can't be there today. You have to let that person have their experience, not at your expense. And it's a really fine balance to find that place that on the one hand you're trying to respect their autonomy and their own life passage. But as you pointed mm-hmm. out, when some of these capabilities start receding, you know, it's like over the nine mm-hmm. years my mother and I shared a home, I became her chauffeur. I became the one who did all of her, paid all of her bills for her because she couldn't see. I became the one who read to her you know, as her abilities were lost. In our case, her mind was as sharp as a tack right to the end. But, for example, I, I've had clients um, who I've advised through this process who are, made, who are primary caregivers who, um, you know, one of them I, that comes to mind, the mother was so rigid and um, unbending about what she wanted and didn't want that it became impossible for the daughter to do a good job at keeping her safe because she would have to keep her mother safe from herself, okay? Mm-hmm. Like the mother, for example, refused to use um, a, a wheelchair or, a, you know, any kind of assisted movement equipment when her body was too weak to get from one place to the other in her apartment and refused to go to a care facility. So how do you provide care? What happens when the caregivers can't pick up the dead weight of the mother to get her on and off a toilet, for example? You know, these are real practical situations that we run into. And, again, I come back to you cannot abandon care for yourself when you're caring for another you you know there is a certain amount that you sacrifice un, 
unquestionably. But you have to put some boundaries in place so that you don't empty your tank. Because when you start having to give from a place of, I don't have anything left to give, you end up resenting the person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's important. And just as they have their journey, you have yours. You know, exactly. And, and theirs is a part of yours, not all of yours. <laughs> so that's kind of exactly. And also, it's so easy to fall into the trap as a caregiver of, well, she's dying. Obviously, her needs are more urgent than mine. I can set mine aside. But you have to be careful that you do not vacate your own life to be a caregiver to the other person. You have to find balance where you are also taking – you have to take care of yourself so that you can help take care of others. Otherwise, you go out of balance. And if you're caregiving from an out-of-balance place, that causes more problems. It's a real, it's not an easy journey. And it's one of the things that was so apparent to me with my mother is we were going through that journey together. She was the one who was dying, and I was the one who was caregiving, and we were doing it hand in hand. It's yeah, a dance. Exactly. <laughs> and I have no rhythm, so I don't <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're about halfway through this, or a little more than halfway through this show, so I want to take a quick break, and I do want to invite listeners, if you would like to call in and ask, do this, any questions, you can call in at 619-789-4359. And for those listening live in the chat room, if you have any questions, feel free to pose them there. Um, and then when we come back from uh, break, Judith, I want to talk to you, you, in your book, you talk about 10 costs and consequences yeah. of the death taboo. So when we come back, sure. I'm going to talk about a couple, okay? Sure. Okay, great. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break.
Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Judith Johnson, and we're talking about her work as well as her new book, Making Peace with Death and Dying, A Practical Guide to Liberating Ourselves from the Death Taboo. And again, you can find out more by visiting Judith's website, which is judithjohnson.com. Real easy. <laughs> okay, with that, is that Judith? Hi. Um, okay. So, um, one of the, in your book, you have a section called the 10 Costs and Consequences of the Death Taboo. And I think for um, some people, you know, uh, once you look at the costs and the consequences, it kind of, they can, they can shift perspective. So, I want to talk about um, a couple of them. Now, you, you talked um, a little bit in the beginning about living, living with fear is one of those ten costs. And then you, you know, talked about how, you know, you, like me, you know, don't like living in fear. But can you talk about how maybe um, shifting the fear of death may also help in other areas of, in, with relation to fear? Absolutely. Um, if you think about fear as a fantasy expectation that appears real, you realize that it's a figment of your imagination. So it's something you're doing in your mind, okay? And when you learn that um, when I'm afraid of something, I'm making, I'm creating that. When you really get that, you realize, hey, I could create something else, you know? Um, I don't have to live in fear. I could do it differently. Um, and so just the empowerment of knowing I can break down patterns of negativity that are inside of me and running the show, okay? Um, so that's really important. Another way of thinking about it is when you're afraid of something, like let's say you're going to go have a test at school and you're really afraid that fear is taking energy. It's very much like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. It takes a lot of energy to sustain a fear because you're living in contraction. Your energy is not flowing. It's tightened, pulled in, and it's almost like you're not breathing. It makes me think about the, um, when I officiate weddings with couples. I always prepare them ahead of time for the moment they come to, they first appear at the altar, so to speak, is I always say to them, breathe. Because what happens is there's fear and the breath isn't moving through the body. And so if you use that as an imagery, you can understand that fear contracts us and relaxing into and experiencing what's present and trusting yourself allows the energy to flow through you and for you to move through more gracefully and efficiently and effectively in life. Okay? Does that answer it? Oh, it does. Very much so. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, okay. And that's what I, you know, I love uh, 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 because it, you know, it really just affects every part of your life and, and yeah. you know, not really kind of um, in how you react to it and how that kind of creates, you know, what it is you want to <laughs> It's the filter through which you experience, and that's important to recognize. Because if you remove that filter, you can see more clearly. 
You know, it's like yeah. ha- it's like when you go to the doctor's office and they're doing checking you for new glasses. And is this clear? More clear, or is this more clear? For anybody who wears glasses, knows that experience. And it's amazing that when you have the right lens that you're looking through, you can see very clearly. Fear is not a clear lens. There you go. I love that metaphor. That's great. Yeah. Uh, so now, one of the, also one of the costs uh, and consequences of the death taboo that you with in your book is the the disconnect between our wishes and reality. And, right. you know, it seems that that one, uh, uh, communication is a very important piece of that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, here's a, here's a perfect example. Um, the, the vast, you mentioned earlier about um, people wanting to die at home. And um, the vast majority of people, if you ask them, where, when you die, where would you like to be? Most people will say, I want to be at home with my loved ones around me. But the vast majority of people end up dying in hospitals and nursing homes. Okay? So there's a disconnect between what we want and what's actually happening. And a lot of that is, again, because of this cultural taboo and the fear that we live in. Um, and another thing is, um, and this is going to bleed in, well, let me leave this for later. Well, I'll just go on to another one with you. Okay. Well, if you were going to talk about postponing or avoiding end of life, that's it. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm going to say, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. So go ahead. I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, when, when I had to, um, you know, deal with all of the uh, implications from uh, a loved one's passing. You know, right then is when I decided, you know, I had, and I've had many a show talking about the importance of preparedness. Um, yeah. But that was one of the that I kind of got in line, and I even updated, you know, I have updates to it. So. Yes. Yeah. So let me let me address the, um, you know, the, the uh, postponing and avoiding end-of-life planning. Um, you know, it's just the way people are kind of allergic to the thought of hospice because they associate hospice with death. We do the same, and this is this is the, how the taboo functions. Another one is that we avoid end of life planning. We tell ourselves, "Well, I'm young. I'm not going to die yet. I don't need to do that." Well, 28 percent of us will die before the age of 65. Now, that doesn't mean. 62 to 65, it means you might be five years old, you might be 27 years old. But almost a third of us die before the age of 65. And this is that to avoid end of life planning has two very major consequences. Well, wait a minute. First, let me say what I'm talking about, what end of life planning is for anyone who doesn't know. End of life planning includes primarily three things. Um, it's all about speaking what your preferences are. Like if you were to die tomorrow, what kind of medical care do you want and don't you want? You know, what's important to you about your end-of-life medical care? All of that falls under the topic of health care proxy, which is a legal document and a legal um, title that is given to a particular person who you say make your health care proxy who in the event that you can't speak for yourself, they will speak on your behalf. So what do you need to do? You need to educate them and let them know what matters to you. 
So the, you need to be able to think through. You need to understand what your choices are. You need to think them through and say, well, I would rather have this than that. Like there are a lot of people who say, I want you to throw every machine and anything you can to keep me alive another minute. Do it all. Don't withhold anything. And there are other people who will say, I really want to die more naturally. Do not hook me up to machines. Okay? There's a, some examples. If you don't tell somebody how and appoint somebody legally to handle that for you in the event that you can't make those statements for yourself, then you have, a, have forfeited the right to have a say. Okay? And then legal uh, laws take over. So that's one of the areas. The second area is a will or a trust. So the same principle is there. What do you want to have happen to, you know, your money and your belongings? Now, you might say, oh, I don't have enough to write a will. It doesn't matter. Well, yeah, it might matter a lot. Like maybe somebody in your family really, really wants that picture that you drew of them when you were five. Now, that might sound immaterial, but if it ha there's a lot of emotional meaning that we carry for things. It's not just financial significance and value. And if you do not articulate what matters to you, then you forfeit the right to have a say, okay? And the third area, which is the least attended to, has to do with when you die, your body, something has to happen to your body, okay? What is it that you would like to have happen? Do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? Do you want a memorial service where, or a funeral service where everybody has their own box of tissues and is crying their eyes out to prove how much they cared about you? Or are you somebody who's inclined to, I really would like a casual little gathering of a few loved ones? It matters what matters to you. Okay, so I mentioned there's two big consequences of not doing end-of-life planning. The one I've said three times here, which is you forfeit the right to have a say. Okay, if you don't, put, if you don't let your wishes be known, then you have forfeited the right to have anybody know what matters to you. And the other one is you put a tremendous burden on your loved ones because when we don't know what you want, we we don't we don't know what to do. We don't you know we might impose our beliefs that might not be the same as yours, or we might feel terribly insecure about I don't know what they want, and we might overdo things in trying to overcompensate and not be accused of not caring enough because you didn't do enough. It's a big burden. Yeah, you know, with that one too. I mean, for those, um, I mean. Having to make the decision is a burden, but also recognizing sometimes um, folks haven't decided for themselves what they want. So making the right. having to make the decision first, you know, for you know someone other than yourself, is something that you haven't even decided for yourself can be challenged. But again, um, not what you want to be doing. But rest the the um, maybe the challenges is. You know, hoping that you would be making the decision that the loved one would have wanted you to make. You know, uh, you know that um, sometimes you know you don't want to do that. But but if there is no communication or documentation as to what one wants, then um, 
is either a guessing game or talking to other people. But yeah. you know, if there's a whole background going, not going on, then, you know, um, yeah, so. Um, there's two points I want to add to that, which one one is the idea of having a health care proxy. That's not um, – you, you're, if you go under anesthesia for a surgery mm-hmm. at age 22 – you should have a healthcare proxy who, if something happens while you are unconscious, they can make a decision for you. So it's not just end, end of life. It can be because, because you have had a concussion and can't think straight. You know, it could be that you have had, you're under anesthesia. So these are incredibly useful tools. The other thing I want to say, and you made me think of it when you said, what about when somebody hasn't even made those decisions for themselves? We all need to understand what the choices are that need to be made. We need to educate ourselves. And what often happens with these these legal documents is people go and fill them out like like they go in the hospital for surgery and they get asked, do you have a health care proxy? No. Then you need to fill out this form, and it's done without enough thought. Because if you really think through the questions that are being asked, you will be more peaceful having thought through what matters to you and what you want and don't want. So it's a process of, number one, peacefully thinking through the choices. Number two, picking the right person to, to be your advocate, educating them about your choices, and distributing that document so it's available, so it should be in your doctor's file. I have a, a, a wallet size uh, card in my wallet that identifies my healthcare proxy person. You know, you might, but people, people very often will have an envelope on the side of their refrigerator, you know, my healthcare proxy. Yeah. You've got to be practical about these things. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, we've got about 10 minutes to go, and I want, one of the things that I like in particular about your book is that you included exercises um, throughout for people to um, to do. So can you, first of all, talk about, you know, why you included those and, and kind of what was the reason, yeah, what was the reason that you did those? Um, and then after that, then we can maybe give an example, okay? Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, this was, this is a, this is a signature of the work that I do. When I write a book, I want you to be having experiences, not just reading information. I want you to be exploring what your personal experience is. So, um, you know, and I'm going to share an example of, of one of the exercises in the book called Envisioning Your Victorious Death. And, you know, it's one thing to say, instead of just being afraid of death, let's talk about what would you imagine as a really good death. Now, I could just say that to you, but you're going to get a lot more value if I take you through an exercise where you actually explore your answers. So can I read that to our Please, guests? yes. Okay. So this favorite. is – oh, thank you. So this is what it says. Um, gather together your favorite writing and, and drawing tools. Close your eyes and imagine that you are on your deathbed and there is a radiant smile on your face. You're not afraid. 
You know that you really gave your life your best. You feel peaceful and relaxed, regardless of any physical pain. Your beliefs are a comfort to you. Knowing that you are dying, you are curious and perhaps a little impatient to know what lies ahead. Those whom you most wish to be by your side are there with you. The music of your, of your, of your choice is softly playing in the background. A beautiful fragrance fills the air. Your consciousness is floating in and out, and you are ready to let go of your life and your loved ones. Look around at your surroundings. Where are you? Who is there with you? What is going on in your mind and in your heart? And remember, this is your fantasy, so make it really good. Now open your eyes and draw or share what you have seen and heard. Include as many details as possible. And if any negative images, thoughts, or fears come up during this exercise that interfered with your ability to perceive a beautiful death for yourself, make note of them on the back of your paper as you will have the opportunity to work with them later. So that's the kind of exercise that I have throughout the book to really give people a process to work through to break free of the death taboo and the fear that they carry. Yeah. I, I liked that one because it was, I mean, aside from the creative aspect to it, it was one that is, um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very calm approach, um, a visualization kind of, of, of what it is that you desire in, in like, you say throughout that that you're creating for you, you know, what is that? Like that music of choice, you know, kind of thing. So, I mean, it's, right. that's what I like about it because it can be so individual. Um, and creative. And and also, you know, a lot of the exercises are designed to take you by the hand and for people who are in fear, and we all have depths of this fear running us on different levels. And to to give you the experience of something other than fear in relationship with death, it's just an invitation into a more practical, creative, comfortable way of relating to death. And it's there inside of you if you are willing to tap into it and express it. It's just that it's foreign and the exercises are there to guide you in, into having some of those experiences so you can break through. Yeah, very much. Gosh, we're down to the uh, last five minutes, too, if it's going by quickly. Um, but one thing I did want to also mention is uh, the part two of your book is called Transforming Your Relationship to Death and Dying. You know, and this mm -hmm. is one of those um, parts that, you know, you kind of put into action um, by changing your beliefs. But anyway, there are nine keys. Uh, to to this transformation and had to chuckle with the acronym for the nine B lighten up. <laughs> so, I'm so thought, glad you oh, saw that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't kind of guy. I mean, other than being bold, I mean, it's just kind of. And I and I when I saw that, um, it immediately uh, created a. Yay. I and mean, this is where I can go here. You know, lighten up is where I can go. And I can do that. You know, so, yeah. um, sure. so can you just tell us a little bit about that particular section and what, what the uh, reader would be able to experience to that. 
Well, okay, the, the whole purpose of this section is exactly that, is to teach you how, you know, when we shed light on something, we can see it more clearly, and we can engage in it more, more clearly. Um, there's this wonderful, I can't remember who said this, but there's this wonderful statement that, that, that um, light can go into the darkness, but the darkness cannot go into the light. And fear is darkness. So this whole section is about shedding light into the dark places so that you make them light, okay, so that you can see clearly. One of the biggest, most important principles in all of this um, in terms of what holds the death taboo together is, is right-wrong thinking, is that we're programmed to think birth is good, death is bad. Okay? Now, when you, you know, imagine that you take your little etch-a-sketch from childhood and erase that thought. And instead of thinking of it then as right and wrong, you think of them as normal. Birth is normal. Life is normal. Death is normal. Now, if we had that kind of relationship with death, we would be so liberated. Okay? It's a, it's a, it's a huge, huge piece. Um, Another part that I think is, is enormous, and I kind of touched on this about, about end-of-life planning, is the importance of investigating your own deepest beliefs and fears about death and dying. Um, you mentioned my use of the term existential maturity, and what I mean by that is really exploring and engaging in a, a personal inquiry into Gosh, what do I think about what the heck is going on here? What is life all about? Because it surely is about more than completing your to-do list today and, you know, earning more money this year than you earned last year and all those kinds of things that we get caught up in. And so this whole section of the book is inviting you into a deeper engagement of your own personal selfhood in this world and helping you to um, live from a deeper place inside of yourself, okay? And I, I want to mention one of my favorites, which is unearthing your treasures. And I um, do a lot of work there about inviting people to share their perspective on what their life has been or is all about from their point of view. Because if you don't do that, you only become known through the filter of other people's perceptions of you primarily as in the roles that you have in their life, you know, like my mother, my friend, my teacher, um, and how liberating it is for us to say, let me tell you what it's like to be me. So uh, that's an invitation for that in that section. I could go on, but I know we're almost out of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think people just have to get the book and, and read it because uh, it really is a wonderful and like it says in the subtitle, practical guide um, yes. for people, and and that's that's what we need, you know. And especially in, in if we're not prepared or have not taken any precaution, you know, any any preparation, then it's um, particularly good to get that <laughs> that book because you kind of uh, help. Well, this has really been wonderful, Judith. I really want to thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I hope again today. Oops, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. I, I, let me get that last minute. What did you say there, Judah? 
No, I was just going to say I hope everybody goes out and buys the book because it's intended to help you a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're right now, I mean, there's a lot of unexpected stuff going around, so it's, yeah. it's, it's good to be prepared to do that Boy Scout or Girl Scout thing. Okay, thank you very much again, Judith. My pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Again, everyone, today, my special guest has been Judith Johnson. We've been talking about her new book, Making Peace, A Practical Guide to Liberating Ourselves from the Best Taboo. And again, you can find out more by visiting Judith's website, which is judithjohnson.com. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.